0: let so open our Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter, th- the third Psalm. And while you're going there, I'll just remind you of this little insert that was in your worship folder. The election of officers will be coming up at our annual meeting, which is the 31st, which will be... Um, after worship, we'll have lunch, then we'll have our meeting. Part of that will be the election of officers, and we like to include a little bit of biographical information, both personal and spiritual, on each one who has been nominated to serve as an elder, and as a deacon, and as a trustee. So that's in your folder for you this week. So Psalm, the third Psalm, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's Word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come upon us with your Holy Spirit, that our eyes would be open, our hearts calmed and enlightened, and our minds given understanding of what your Word says and how we should live it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The third psalm, it is a psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, this is very important, the setting and the context is very important for this song. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. And then you'll see in the margin that word selah, which means to stop and to pause and to think about what has just gone on. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek." Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon the people. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. There's a long list throughout history of people who have had everything and then lost it all. And it probably doesn't take us long to, to think of some famous people who, in a blink of an eye, seem to be at the top of the world, and then they're at the bottom. In our lifetime, we have seen this in a uh, president. One day he's a president, and then he resigns. We've seen this in movie stars who are one day mobbed wherever they go, and then the next minute they're hated because of maybe of something that they have done or said. And I've often wondered how presidents adjust to the title of former presidents. You know, one minute, they're the most powerful person in the world. And, and the news meeting, everybody just hangs on their every word, just waiting to, to parse it out. And what did they really mean when they said this? And then the next minute, they're flying coach like the rest of us. No, Maybe not coach, but they don't have their own 747 anymore, right? I think that's what Reagan said was the hardest thing of giving up being president. He says, you don't have your own plane anymore. You don't have it. Okay. Well, Psalm 3 begins uh, really a series of psalms that that come after about how the godly person deals with a sudden change of their circumstances in their life. How is it that one minute things are going well and then the next minute things look like they're going right down the tubes? How does the godly person deal with that? And and in these psalms, uh, especially this psalm number 3, We see how the godly person learns to trust in the Lord. And here we have a man who is in great physical danger. It's King David. Great physical danger. And for whom his place in the world has completely changed. Has completely changed. Now it must have been traumatic, humiliating. Uh, Just fill in the word for King David. When his son Absalom revolted against him. Now that's the context of the psalm, as you can see from the prescript here. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. David had reigned for decades. Most powerful monarch in the area. He had stilled the enemies. He had conquered everybody around, and now his kingdom had known some semblance of peace. I mean, he was this great military leader. He had extended Israel's domain far beyond what it was before, and he had become wealthy. Not, he wasn't the one who would build the temple. That was left for his son because he was a man of war, but he was very good at it, very good at it. He had become fabulously wealthy because of this. He had lived in this great palace. He had wives and servants. He had absolute authority over everybody who was under his kingdom. Life or death, he could speak that to them in the heartbeat. Nobody dared get on David's bad side. But then we see, if we go back, we, we see the root cause of this particular problem that David is having with his son, and that goes back to his sin with Bathsheba. Now now we know what happened. It was the time when kings go out to war and David was still at the palace hanging out. He wasn't out with his troops. He was there. He was bored. He looks over his uh, looks over Jerusalem, sees Bathsheba, uh, and his heart lust after her. He gets her up to the palace, and we know what happens after that. And then he's got to cover up his sin. So to cover up his sin, he gets Uriah up there to try to make him complicit with him, and Uriah doesn't participate in the sin. He says, no, no, I can't go back to see my wife when all my friends are out there in the battlefield. I have to go out and be with them. And so David sends a note that says, Send Uriah up to the fiercest battle and then withdraw that he might be killed. And that's what happens to Uriah. And David thinks he's off scot-free. Nobody knows. Okay? See, that's the problem with our sin. We think nobody knows. And sure enough, somebody knew because Nathan comes along, Nathan the prophet comes along. And he gives David this great scenario about a guy with one lamb and he lives next to a d- d- guy with a bunch of lambs. And the guy with a bunch of lambs says, well, I've got somebody special coming over. I think we'll have a feast and I'm going to take this lamb from this guy. And, and <coughs> Nathan says, what should happen to that guy, David? And he says, that guy's got to die. And Nathan says, you're that man. And David knew immediately what he was talking about. Nathan didn't say it yet, but David knew. And he says, I've sinned where? Before God. Before God. So, the punishment for David's sin was not death, but it was this struggle that would come later in his life and in the kingdom as a whole. So, here are some of the problems that David has faced because of his sin with Bathsheba. David's oldest son, Amnon, lusted after his half-sister, Tamar, raped her, and then Tamar's brother Absalom took revenge by killing Amnon. And then Absalom fled the kingdom, and he kind of ran away, and he was in exile for several years. But David's heart softens towards Absalom. I, I, I'm not sure I understand completely the, the special place that Absalom had in David's heart, even, even though he, he did so many bad things to David, and we'll see it here as, as we get on in this psalm. But he returns, but David doesn't talk to him. And so for two years, Absalom lives in the palace area, but he never sees David. David never talks to him, never sends for him, has nothing to do with him. So during this time, Absalom gets this idea in his, in his head that, that, you know what? If I go out and kind of work the crowd of the kingdom and tell everybody what a good guy I am and what a bad guy David is and tell them that if you support me there'll be favors and there'll be you know these special things I'll do for you then I can get enough people within the kingdom on my side that I can get David out so this is what Absalom begins to do he begins to court and and find all the disgruntled people in the kingdom and he says I'm a more sympathetic guy I feel your pain that's what Absalom was kind of saying Finally, Absalom gets together enough people, enough, a strong enough conspiracy that he can revolt against David. And so the revolt, David doesn't see this coming. Okay, David is doing whatever David was doing and he didn't understand what was brewing underneath. And the revolt is so sudden and so unexpected that David understands that in order to survive, he has to flee. He has to leave the palace, he has to leave Jerusalem, and he has to get out of town before all the people that Absalom has garnered and gathered together come and take him. So he flees the capital with all his family, all his supporters. Uh, Scripture says they went weeping and barefoot, heads covered in sorrows. All All those servants took their little ones, they grabbed whatever they could, and they fled Jerusalem. And to add injury to insult on the way out, Shemai, who is, is, is this, uh, le- this leftover from, um, um, from Saul's time, he comes out as David and this entourage are leaving, and he throws rocks at David. And he says, see, God doesn't bless you. We you've, you've found your sin, and, and he, he taunts David as he's leaving town. And David just keeps his head down and goes out. So this is David's probably most traumatic and humiliating experience. Everything that he had spent his life doing, he was at the top of the world, and now he seems to come crashing down. Many of those he thought were his allies were really, had abandoned him and and sided with Absalom. And that, the treachery of his son, is probably the most painful wound of all. It brought David home to his failure as as, his father and as a leader. One son murdered, one daughter raped. The murderer is now after his own kingdom and his own life as well. Life was at the top, and now he's lost, seemingly lost everything that he had. He was falling apart. So what do you do when life falls apart? Now, probably we, we've not experienced this same trauma of, of having so much and then suddenly having nothing, fleeing with only the, the things on our backs, but in lesser ways, we probably had times where we could identify with what David was going through. I mean, perhaps you're going good at work and things are just fine, and the boss calls you in and he says, uh, "We've we've we have a reduction in force." Is that what they call it? And you're the force that's going to be reduced. Okay. Uh, or maybe you go in and there's this comment about you I had a a friend who was a a teacher back in Wilmington and and life is going good and, and suddenly he's called in the principal's office and the principal said there's been a an accusation by a student against you and his whole world changed the accusation was false the student later said I made it up but reputations are made over time they are lost in an instant in an instant So maybe you've faced false accusations. Maybe you've had a child who suddenly turned against you. You you took up a lifestyle that was completely antithetical to everything that you stood for. And every time you tried to intervene in their lives, every time you attempted to provide some wisdom or counseling, they just closed their ears to you because you really didn't understand, you didn't know they wanted to do their own thing their own way. Or perhaps you had a a spouse that suddenly said, you know what, I just don't want to be married anymore. You think everything is good, and then suddenly your life comes crashing down. What do you do when life falls apart? Psalm 3 is what David did. He wrote a psalm. Now, it's not the first thing that comes across my mind, is to write a psalm when, when life is 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 making it difficult on me. Maybe that's why David is a man after God's own heart. Because we see in this psalm, the changes that take place in David's life as he understands more of what the Lord is doing. So it's divided up into three sections, 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, and 7 and 8. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. So David begins to cry out to the Lord. It's very personal. Uh, and he uses the, the covenant name of the Lord here. And the covenant name is very intimate and personal form here. So it's almost like in the New Testament when we cry, Abba, Father. We're, we're, he's going to the God that he knows very well in an intimate way. So what is happening here? Well, first, David's adversaries have increased. How my adversaries have increased? It, for, as far as David knows, as far as we can tell here, they went from nothing to hundreds in an instant. I mean, he's just going about, uh, you know, it's like the dog, okey-dog, lucky okey dog He's just all happy, and all of a sudden his world comes crashing down. Well, that's what's happened to David here. He's always had enemies, but suddenly he's got enemies in his own camp, in his own camp. And it seems like it's just snowballing and snowballing and building and building. And secondly, in verse 2, David repeats the words that he has heard from his enemies. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Literally, in Hebrews, it says, many are saying to my soul. They are speaking about what I should think in my heart. And their words are hitting David very hard. They're saying, you know what? God's deserted you. There's no deliverance for you. We've heard this. Job's wife said it to him. When things were really bad, she said, what? Curse God and die. He says he's given up on you. And, and David's uh, people around David are saying, you know what, God's given up on you as well. Maybe they're bringing up Bathsheba's sin. Maybe they're bringing up this failure of David's family. They're bringing all these things in an effort to hurt him, to make him feel worse and worse. They're saying, hypocrite, how can you claim to follow God? Look what you've done. How can you claim that God blesses you? Look what you've done in your life. You're a murderer and a liar and an adulterer. That's what David was. Spurgeon says, Doubtless, David felt this infernal suggestion to be staggering to his faith. If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Okay. Now, that's a false accusation. But some people can be led to fear that God has deserted them. Oh, man. Real Christians don't behave that way. Real Christians don't do that. I'm sure that God has just pitched you out and moved on to somebody else that is a terrible thought to have in our minds because it runs contrary to scripture. It says what? Once you're here, nothing can take you from his hand. But along comes those who don't understand that. Along comes Satan and goes, really? Did God really say that? He didn't mean that. He didn't mean that you can't be taken from his hand in fact he meant to say that those who are faithful can't be taken from his hand those who follow his ways will never do no no he said if if you're mine you're mine will you be perfect no you won't be perfect was david perfect certainly not but he was a man after god's own heart now as i said we have the word selah there i want you to look at that space between verses two and three now, the writing is really small there in my Bible because a lot happens between two and three. Okay? Can you read that? Between two and three? Well, let me fill it in for you. Okay? I, I, I'll fill in what is in there between two and three. David turns his attention away from his enemies and to the Lord. This is what happens here. He says. Look, they're, they're, they're saying of my, to my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. And then what happens in the next verse? But thou, O Lord. So something happens in David's heart and in David's life that creates this very big transition from, I'm just being bombarded by all this uh, negative thought and that, that this thought that God has abandoned me. But he says, ah, but you are my shield. So David understands that God has not abandoned him. See, when the believer focuses on their enemies, the enemies seem to grow in size disproportionately. Eventually, the enemies can become overwhelming if all we do is focus. If David simply stopped and simply repeated these lies in his mind that he had heard from his enemies, David would become disheartened and he would become depressed and he would forget the promises Of our Heavenly Father. How about an illustration of this? People of God show up at the border of the promised land. I mean, this is the promised land, promised by God for His people. And here they are at the border. He says, We're going to send out 12 spies, go in, check out the land, come back, and give us a report. They all go out, they come back, we know the story. Jacob and Caleb say, Promised land, God's promised it to us, let's go get it. And the other 10 go, Do you see how big those people were? Did you see how thick their walls were? We we can never take that land. And they began to talk and talk and more and more. And the people began to listen to those 10. And what did Jacob and Caleb see when they were in the promised land? They saw the giants, they saw the big, thick walls, but they kept their eyes on the promises of the Lord. This is what I have for you. So you're my people. This belongs to you. Go and take it. And Jacob and Caleb came back and said, Come on, let's go get it. And the people listened only to the other ten. They did not listen to the promises of the Lord. It's not that the two didn't see the dangers, they saw the promises. What's greater, the dangers or the promises? The promises of the Lord. Same thing happens here between verses 2 and 3. We see David taking his eyes off of the words that his enemies are saying, and he meditates upon the things of the Lord. And this is his response. Let's go to 4, four and 5. David says four things about God here that he begins to understand in the midst of this. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. Number one, you are my shield. She, and we go to the New Testament. We have a shield, part of the spiritual armor of the believer. Okay? Now, the shield first occurs back in the life of Abram, that God, Genesis 15, God is a shield to him. It occurs frequently throughout the psalm. God is my shield. He is a shield. He protects his people. God is a protector and a defender. He shields us from the enemy's arrows and attacks. And David personalizes it. He says, it's a shield about me and it's not just a shield in the front we get this in it's about me it's it's the shield of protection that goes around david secondly he says the lord is my glory he so the lord is my glory although david you know he was about as powerful and as important as it gets in this world he was the king of god's covenant people power popularity he had it all now he has nothing and he doesn't say lord you know return me to my former glory on the throne he says no no the lord is my glory he's not looking back and saying what he had had he's looking at what the lord is in his life in reality he is his shield the lord is his glory his glory third the lord is the restorer of our joy he says to lift up. So the, the one verse, the end of verse 3, the one who lifts up my head. That's a, a euphemism or a phrase for restore of glory. Okay? Um, remember when um, Joseph is in prison and he, he's got, the, he got the, the baker and the Cupbearer, okay. Sorry, <laughs> I should have wrote that. The baker and the cupbearer. and he says to one, "You're going to die," and the other one says, "The Pharaoh will lift up his lift up your head." Okay, that's a euphemism for he will restore you to your place that you had before. That's the same thing here. It refers to God restoring to us joy, that ending the, this crisis and putting us back where He had us before. He humbles the proud. But he lifts up the humble. And the fourth one is the Lord is our prayer-answering God. Now, prayer-answering is a phrase that I got from Spurgeon. I won't claim that as my own. Verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. He answered me. Now, I know that there are times where we cry to the Lord and we don't think he hears us. We cry to the Lord, and and we're just we're just not getting any answer from Him. Now there are times where that's our fault because we're not really listening. We're not doing those things that help us understand the Lord, and then other times it's our fault because we don't like the answer that the Lord gives us. Okay, because we want this answer, and He says, "No, my perfect will is this answer." I said, "No, no, Lord, you, maybe you didn't hear my prayer." I, I, I'm over here. And he says, well, yeah, but I'm over here. Now, where do you really want to be? You want to be over here? Or you want to be over here? We want to be over here. Spurgeon says, we need not fear a frowning God. No, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) I have to get a new pair here. (laughs) We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. See, this is what has come to David. Why should I be concerned about all those things the world is talking to me? I've got a God who hears my prayers. Just think about that for a moment in our own minds. A God who hears your prayer. Now, if we were all to pray at the same time, he would hear us individually. He would know our hearts individually. If everybody in Huntsville prayed at the same time, you get the idea. He hears each believer individually. We have a prayer hearing God. We have a prayer answering God. Zadok and the Levites also hit the road, and they had the ark. They had the ark, and they want to join David in, in his escape, but David sends them back with the ark. And he, basically he says this, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The narrative of this is Second Samuel 15 and 16, if you want to go back and, and read the story of all what's going on here. So David's heart was humble before the Lord... If the Lord restored him, he would worship him. If the Lord did not, the Lord would still be his glory and still be his shield. Now there's another Selah after verse 4. And there's such confidence here that uh, that in David, and and I'm going to read the the real little words between verses 4 and 5 for you as well. David goes to sleep here. He doesn't go to sleep wondering, I wonder what the Lord's going to do. I wonder what he's going to do. Is he going to come and save us? Is he going to restore us? David goes to sleep with confidence because it says, I lay down and slept and I woke for the Lord sustains me. He, he went to sleep in confidence, knowing that the Lord had all of this under his control. I think of what Martin Luther wrote, and the, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness, Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And that word That word above all earthly powers is Jesus. That's the word. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them by no thanks to the earthly powers. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It is forever. So when you lay hold of God in prayer, when you go to him with your eyes focused on him and not upon those who are, are pressing upon you and filling your mind with lies, you will find peace. This reminds us of Philippians chapter 4. Uh, well, I became a believer when I was 15. This is the verse that really I hung my life on. And I paraphrased it. Pray about everything. Be anxious about nothing. it's well, pretty simple, Rand. Well, I was a simple guy. Isn't that the truth, though? Now, it doesn't mean don't be aware of things. It says don't be anxious for them. Pray about them, trusting the Lord. And when you trust the Lord, no longer anxious for these things, and trust the Lord, what will you receive? Receive peace. you receive confidence and rest in the things that the Lord is doing. David cried out to God in prayer, and then he went to bed. Not in the palace where he was safe and warm. He is camped out in the wilderness. This is no strange place for David. He spent a lot of time in the wilderness, but he was used to that bed, that nice soft bed in the palace. But now he's out running for his life, but he is at peace and at rest because the Lord is in charge. Let's go over, we got going to go one place and, and read something along these lines. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. You know, if you ever see a, a a baby sleep, you know, or you can, you see them, you can run the vacuum cleaner and they don't wake up, maybe it takes the vacuum cleaner to put them to sleep. Um, or you see them and, and they sleep like this, you know, how long could you sleep like this before that might be a permanent position for you for the rest of the day? Um, you, you know, but, but you see they have this, they call it the guiltless sleep of a child. They, they have nothing to worry about. I mean, they just and they're gone, and they're asleep. And how do you wake them up? You know, you've got to shake them. Up. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. This is the sleep of peace. Now, about the time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And you know the end of this, um, when Peter shows up at the house of those who are praying and the servant girl looks and she closes the door and runs back and says, it's Peter at the door. And they went, no, forget it. He's in prison. Let's go back to praying for his release. And and, and so, verse 6 And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side. Okay, this is, I don't know how hard he struck Peter's side. But it's, I get the idea that the light, I mean, an, an angelic light shows up in the cell and Peter doesn't stir. So the angel has to kind of give him a kick with, a, with his sword or something to sh- shake him out of his sleep. Because Peter is in such a restful and peaceful sleep. There he is in prison for preaching the word, chained, guards all about him. And an angel comes and says, Peter, get up. Peter, Peter, time to go. See, that's the rest. That we have in the Lord. That's the sustaining grace that He gives us. When the Lord is your shield, when you know He is the one who protects you, the odds or numbers against you really don't matter that much. There's an old Bill Gaither song. I'll just give you a little bit of it. You might be thinking that I'm sure to lose, but I've got reasons for the sides I choose. Well, the Lord is with me and He's always won, so I'll stay with Him until the battle's done. I've got power that you can't see. God is living inside of me. I can fight any enemy because God and I make a majority. See, that's not very good theology because God makes the majority. Okay? But I just happen to be along on his side because he said, Randy, you're mine, and I go with you. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Back to uh, Psalm chapter 3. The last couple verses here. This is confidence. Confidence. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Okay, it's almost like they are a snarling beast that is coming to eat him. And the way to defang a snarling beast is to wipe out his teeth. And that's what he says here. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs only to the Lord. Salvation belongs only to the Lord. David is not depending upon troops. He is not depending upon his own wiles and wisdom. He is not depending upon the people who have been left to give false counsel to Absalom, although they do give false counsel to Absalom. Absalom does not pursue David when he is the weakest. He takes his time and hesitates, and David eventually overcomes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. John chapter 2 says salvation comes from the Lord. That's where it comes from. From first to last, our deliverance is the work of the Lord. Again, Spurgeon said not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. And David's final request. Now understand, all of this, this is like David's wrestling in his personal life and all of these things, but how does he end it? Blessing be upon me, thy people. See, David remembers he's king over these people, and he's been given charge over all of these people. And Absalom's rebellion is David's fault because of David's sin, and it affects all of these other people. And he says, Lord, your blessing be upon them. So when David is seeking to be delivered as a person, he's also seeking to be delivered as a kingdom, that these people might remain in God's blessing. So our prayers, we, we might find that, that we are under attack and we're, we're pressed upon, but remember, it, the prayers are not just for us. It's for God's people that in the midst of what he does in our lives, that his grace would be demonstrated to all who are around us. So let's pray. Lord, this is such a great psalm to remind us where to keep our eyes not focused on the lies and the half-truths and the words of our enemies or the people who do not believe, but focused upon the promises that you have, upon your character, upon the way that you've acted before and upon the way that you promise to act in the future. To rest in you, in that, that sleep that trusts you, doesn't mean we're oblivious to things around us. It means we have prayed about them. We have entrusted those things into your hand. And know that you will provide for us wisdom when we most need it. You will provide for us the way to act when when the time comes. And you will provide for us a reminder that we belong to you. We fear no man. We fear no man. So, Lord, as we come to you today, remind us of these great truths and promises that we see in David's life that they might be evidenced in our lives as well. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.